we were the smallest county in the state of Florida, and everybody knew everybody, and it was basically a farm community. It usually nothing ever happened in that county. We were right there at the prison, you know, you know, Florida State Prison, but this, you know, the inmates came in there, but nothing usually ever happened there. Uh, you never know, and this was, yeah, Mr. Biddick's was big news. God bless the forethought of the person or persons responsible for archiving their old publications right there online, giving any history buff or researcher like me the opportunity to sit right at home at my computer and peruse the old articles. The Union County Times is a weekly paper and, in 1989, it was published every Thursday in Lake Butler, Florida. Back then, it generally printed information about local goings-on in the community and local businesses. A front-page story covering a local homicide was not a usual occurrence. In fact, it was rare. So I imagine it was the talk of the town when on July 24, 1991, the town awoke to the biggest story that had likely occurred in Lake Butler in recent memory. It shocked the whole county, I can tell you that. And everybody came out with the funeral. I mean, it was just, you know, unreal. I spent a day or so pulling every article related to the story that I could find, which turned out to be 11 articles or so, and that's only because a jail escape was involved. The woman who did the local reporting on this story was a woman named Gail Livingston. I was eventually able to get in contact with her. I worked, actually, for the Lake City Reporter. I had left the local newspaper and went to Lake City. Her first article noted a series of facts, including the time the incident occurred, somewhere between 3.30 and 3.45 in the afternoon, on July 24, 1991. That time was nailed down because a witness had spotted the perpetrator's vehicle at the scene. Police even had a basic outline of what had happened. The men had gone to the bar to buy a six-pack and had placed their money on the counter just prior to robbing him. By 7 p.m. that night, they had his house surrounded, but he and his cohort in crime had already fled the scene. I want to add here that I recently heard a podcast opine that it wouldn't make sense for a robber to pay for something before committing a robbery. But in fact, that ruse does occur frequently, and it even happened in the Darlene Messer case, apparently. They pretend to be a customer just up to the moment that they make their criminal intentions known, often even paying for the item and being completely checked out before pulling out a weapon. I think it's robbers scoping the place out, getting the feel for what they're about to do, and even sometimes being a little nervous in the instant before shit really pops off. I did reach out to uh, the um, the state's attorney, Mr. Maines, just by Facebook to see if he remembered anything, and he did remember. He said it was like an overkill situation where it was just a lot, you know, I mean, like it was. really bad, right. And so I'm... Yeah, because I went down there and it, it, was, it was bad. And it was it was overkill. It, it was pretty bad. Um, of course, I never took any photos. I just took photos in the bar, right. where, you know. But it, it was. Harold Biddicks, a 67-year-old man who owned Harold's Bar, had been found by a customer, slumped behind his bar, dead, having been beaten to death. Mr. Biddicks was known and liked within the community. He'd been born in North Carolina, but lived most of his life in Florida, first in the Jacksonville area and later in Union County. He was retired from the Navy and had also been in the Army. In Jacksonville, he had owned a barber shop, and in Union County, a couple bars. The initial gossip was that Mr. Biddicks had been shot, and that fact was noted in the paper and eventually clarified. 
but it was repeated to me by the witness in Darlene Messer's case, who had mentioned Harold Biddick's and Jesse James to me in the first place. The reason why I contacted you is I'm covering a case from a woman that was um, abducted from a Suwannee Swifty store in Lake City in 1989. Her name was Darlene Messer. And then they found her two days later, uh, her body under the Swift Creek Bridge. Had you ever, do you remember that case? Mm-hmm. Yes, I do. Oh, good. Um, so then I was interviewing someone about that case whose name came up in the police report because I had sent a FOIA request to get all the documents. I always usually ask at the end, okay, is there, what do you remember as far as gossip around town? Was there anyone say, anyone saying, I, th- I heard this person did or that person did it? Because sometimes you can find, you know, slivers of truth in gossip as far as you can go and d- pull some threads and, and research a little bit more, you know? And he mm-hmm. said around town what he had heard was some guy named Jesse James. And I said, his name is really Jesse James? And he said, yeah, he didn't know his last name. And he said, but yeah. I believe he remembered that he killed that man named Harold Biddick's up at that uh, bar. There were some similarities between what happened to Mr. Biddick's as far as the overkill and use of a hammer and robbery. And the reason why it was interesting to me is because she also had a lot of blunt force trauma to the head. And... Um, <coughs> It, it, they were thinking a claw hammer in that case because there were some round type injuries that you could get from the regular end of a hammer, two of those, but there were also some possible blunt force traumas that could have been from a claw hammer. But another problem with hers to muddy the water was that she was thrown into this little creek underneath Swift Creek Bridge. And there's also a possibility as, or of some animal predation. They were thinking maybe even a gator, you know, they, they can't know for sure what was done by which. Well, see, Jesse James had a companion with him, too, when he killed Mr. Biddicks. Right. His co-defendant got out um, much earlier. He got out in, like, 2000, and Jesse James is on death row. I mean, he's uh, not on death row, but on life in prison. He's, he's life never... in prison, yes. Right. So there was a vast disparity in their charges. And when I asked Mr. Mr. Maines, um, was, the, was it basically because they thought that Jesse James was the one who did the actual you know, hitting of him, and the, and the other one was just there with him, and he said, basically, yeah, that they, they thought yes, he was the one was. that did it. And the other guy was just along for the ride at the time, or whatever. You know, he was just there. And uh, so that's why he did not... Uh, I do not know if Jesse James admitted to it now, or whatever. I don't remember all of it. Like I said, I left this newspaper and went to the other newspaper. I think it took a while for it ever went to trial. Well, either one of these uh, suspects, were they, or perpetrators, were they known to be um, troublemakers in the area? Like, did, did it seem like that they were known to police? Um, I think they were kind of known to the police, but I don't think they actually lived in town. I think they lived in Columbia County. A friend of mine came over from the Gainesville Sun, and we kind of, believe it or not, we knew where they were supposedly going. And we got in a car and chased them. You did? Um, yes, to try and find them because we were told where they were probably hiding out. And they had actually went across the Union County line into Baker County. Right. But it's a good thing we didn't find them. Let's put it that way. What did, do you re- no. What do you remember about Mr. Biddicks? I mean, how well was he known in the community, and what type of person was he? Do you know? Very well known in the county. Um, I knew his family. Like I said, his daughter lived right down the street from me. He had a very wonderful wife. His house was just, you know, right over from um, over from the bar. Um, he, everybody loved Mr. Biddicks and mm. his wife, his family. I, I mean, he was well known. 
Um, these, these people, I don't know. I think he was an easy target. He always carried a lot of money on him. I don't know if they knew that, and they probably heard it. Probably, because they, I think they were also, they bought drugs afterwards while they were on the run, so, you know, they don't even care what kind of person, and that's a shame, because I had heard that he was a really nice guy, Mr. Biddick, and so that's sad, you know, that just for some drug money that he, you know, Mm -hmm. that he had to die like that, and what a terrible way to die, too, Um, you know, being beaten like that. He was good to loan people money if they needed it, and, and stuff, I mean, like I said, he was just a wonderful person, and the sheriff was at some kind of meeting, and stuff, and he was, he left the meeting and came back to town to, um, you know, cover what he could and everything else because, you know, like I said, it's a small town. Um, they kind of knew where they had went, and they went to look at a house for them, and they couldn't find them, which was other, you know, over in Baker County, I think, in the other county. And, uh, but they arrested them the next morning in Baker County, yes. And um, they were charged for burglary and battery. And the two that they charged were uh, James Brandon, who was 29, and David Allen Thomason, who was 30. And um, it was actually Jesse James Brandon was his name. Initially, in Mr. Biddick's case, there was money left on the counter, so the police weren't sure robbery was the motive. Also, Jesse James escaped. About a year after the homicide, while incarcerated and awaiting adjudication, he snuck out between rounds of the officer around 9 p.m. Obviously, I wanted more facts about the case, so I looked up Jesse's Florida Department of Corrections page and learned that he had quite a rap sheet. Then I jotted down all the file numbers and sent out a bunch more records requests. Now let me be specific about why I'm doing this and what I'm looking for. I hadn't seen Jesse James Brannon's name anywhere in the Columbia County report on the Darlene Messer case. I got his name from one person that I interviewed. Every time I interview someone in and around a homicide case, I ask what gossip that they've learned over the years and particularly what they were hearing around the time of the event. Sometimes in local gossip there are threads of truth and now I feel obligated to suss out whether any of those threads might lead back to Darlene's murder. Because Union County Assistant State Attorney John Maines IV had been mentioned in the newspaper articles, and had even showed up at the crime scene on that first day, I decided to reach out to him via Facebook while I waited on those records requests to arrive, which I should note is one of the most frustrating parts of this job, and it's why there's so much time in between the seasons when I publish the podcasts. But the whole time, I'm like Veruca Salt from the Willy Wonka movie. And instead of a golden goose, it's reports. I want it, and I want it now. Former Union County Assistant State Attorney John Maines IV must not have been too far from his phone on that Sunday afternoon because he messaged me back rather quickly, and he was gracious with his time. I gave him a quick rundown of what I was looking for and why, and at that point I mostly wanted to know why Jesse James Brannon and David Tomlinson, his co-conspirator, had gotten such different charges. Tomlinson got out in 2000 having served only nine years. Jesse is still serving a life sentence. He remembered the homicide because he had a personal relationship with the victim, Mr. Biddicks. He said that he never recalled hearing Brannon's name in connection with any other homicides, and he told me that the Biddicks murder was a robbery. I told him that Darlene's case was a robbery as well, and there were some similarities. 
You see, a hammer had been used on poor Mr. Biddick's as well. They found that hammer only a couple miles down the same road as Darlene's body was found. I asked him about the disparity in time served with the perpetrators and asked if Tomlinson got a lesser sentence because Brannon was believed to have been the one who bludgeoned Mr. Biddick's. He said that yes, that was a fair assessment. I asked him if Mr. Biddick's injuries were overkill or had a lot of facial trauma because in the paper they had qualified it as having his head beaten in. He responded with two words, overkill, brutal. So there's one similarity to Darlene's case, if we go with the theory that most of her head injuries were due to blunt force trauma with a weapon described early on by Columbia County Sheriff Tom Trammell in his summary as, quote, the wounds appeared to be overkill, the weapon appears to have been a claw hammer or some other type of weapon in that category. The victim was beaten beyond recognition. Former Assistant State Attorney John Maines recalled the hammer in his case had been a ball-peen hammer, though, which wouldn't have had a claw end, and when I asked, he thought that the perpetrator brought it with him to the scene, as Darlene's perpetrator certainly would have, since there was no mention of the perpetrator in her case finding a hammer there and bludgeoning her with it. So in both cases, if we believe a hammer was used, it was brought to the scene by the perpetrator or perpetrators, and both cases involved overkill. He couldn't remember exactly where they found the hammer in the Biddick's case, but the newspaper said, quote, Union County Sheriff deputies found a hammer they believe might have been used in the beating following directions given by one of the suspects to search the area along Aulusti Creek in State Road 100, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right. It's O-L-U-S-T-E-E. The Aulusti Creek Bridge is about four miles down State Road 100, from the Swift Creek Bridge, where Darlene was found. And the area in question looks identical. You can see the old train tracks on one side of the two-lane road and the creek below. Both areas are remote, with not much around them, and are lined on both sides with forested area. I would be hard-pressed to tell the difference between the two. That's how identical they look. In fact, all the locations in both cases are right there along one long stretch of State Road 100. It's a matter of 25 miles between Darlene's store and Harold's bar in one straight shot, with the hammer dump site and the body dump site, about two or three miles apart, right in the middle. I've mentioned it before in cases that I've covered. Law enforcement often looks at local bad actors when their leads run dry. Got a sex offense? Check the local sex offenders. Got a burglary? Check into similar burglaries in the area, and the perps in those cases. It's the same with homicide particularly in small towns, if you've got an offender or offenders who might have committed similar crimes in the area to the crime you're investigating, you need to rule them out. That's why I am looking into Jesse James Brannon. What I learned about Jesse is that he spent the last decade or so trying to get the relief that he believes he's due on his convictions, suggesting that he didn't understand the sentencing when he took his plea. I've gone over all the court documents, and the first thing that's abundantly clear is that he was appraised of the consequences of his plea and the resulting sentence. In fact, the court and his lawyer went over and over and over it to the tune of 80 pages worth of transcript. There was discussion about his mental capacity at the time, which is why there was so much effort put into explaining over and over what the consequences would and could be based on the plea that he was about to take. But Jesse alleges that he didn't understand at the time of his conviction. This is from a handwritten document titled Due Diligence 
prong statement in facts in support, which accompanied one of his many appeals over the last 10 years, this one relying on what he deemed newly discovered information. But the newly discovered information he proffered was that he didn't understand what he'd been told in the first place. This particular appeal was denied based on the fact that new information does not qualify as new evidence as a grounds for appeal. I'm going to let him explain it in his own words. When defendant entered prison in June of 1992, he could not read or comprehend. Defendant was also considered to be functionally illiterate and handicapped intellectually. Please see page 44, lines 11 through 20, and page 100, lines 16 through 21, of evidentiary hearing held June 4, 1993, where defense counsel admitted to the above mentioned and where the trial court recognized it as well. After entering prison, defendant tried to enter a school program where he could learn. Defendant was told a person with a life sentence cannot go to school. Defendant tried to teach himself, but he could not understand what the words were trying to say to him. It was so hard to get help from others, because they would get aggravated with repeating the same sentence over and over, and then having to explain the meaning of what the words were saying to the defendant, and they would quit. It was disheartening to the defendant, and made him wonder why. All I want to do is learn how to read, and know what the words are saying to me, or I can work on my case. In the year of 2001, while defendant was on close management at Union Correctional Institution, a man opened a school program for inmates on CM. Defendant was allowed to enroll. Then, three weeks into the program, defendant was dropped from the school program without any reason given to defendant. Again came the question, why? In the year of 2003, defendant was moved to Okeechobee Correctional Institution, where he met with a law clerk who took a liking to defendant and asked if he could look into my case to see if he could help. Then in December of 2004, he filed a motion to correct a legal sentence on behalf of defendant and then amended said motion in January 2005. Said motion was denied by the 8th Judicial Circuit Court in Union County. The law clerk appealed to the 1st District Court of Appeals in Florida. The 1st District Court affirmed the trial court's denial on January 26, 2006, and also denied motion for rehearing on March 29, 2006. During the course of the above-mentioned motion, being filed in December of 2004 and affirmed by the 1st District Court of Appeal in March, after denying motion for rehearing, Benny Mooney, the above-mentioned law clerk at Florida State Prison, from 1997 to 1999, was helping defendant learn to read and be able to comprehend what the words were saying to defendant. In February of 2005, Mr. Decker came out of retirement and opened a GED program at OCI for anyone who wanted to learn. Defendant was enrolled in April of 2005. It took a total of 14 months for defendant to earn enough credits to allow him a seat for the GED test. On June 15, 2006, defendant received his GED, see attached diploma and score sheet. Notice the reading score. It is the one defendant is most proud of. While defendant was attending class at school during the day, defendant was working at night, 
with a law clerk on his case. Together they filed a motion in April 2006. Said motion was denied by 8th Judicial Court in Union County, Florida. Said motion was denied. Motion for rehearing was filed and denied in September of 2006. Defendant and law clerk filed an appeal with the 1st District Court of Appeal on October 6, 2006. They granted motion requesting permission to file initial brief on December 15th and receive said brief. After the filing of the initial brief, said law clerk was transferred to another prison. Defendant lost contact. Defendant continued to research the issues at hand concerning his sentence in counts 1 and 3. Defendant came to the realization that he doesn't even know what his sentence is. Defendant requested an interview with Mr. Hasselden, director of the law library at OCI. Said interview was granted. Defendant asked who would be able to put into plain English to defendant just what is his sentence. Mr. Hasselden directed defendant that he should send Mrs. Cruz, the sentencing specialist for OCI, an inmate request and ask about his sentences in count 1 and 3 of case 918-2CFA. Defendant did as directed, and from December 6, 2006 through December 20, 2006, defendant filed a total of six requests concerning his sentences. Ms. Cruz responded and informed defendant that yes, both penalties have minimum mandatories, and yes, they were running consecutively. Defendant filed a motion requesting permission to file a supplemental brief. Said motion was granted on May 14, 2007. While awaiting a decision concerning before-mentioned motion, from December 26, 2006 to May 14, 2007, defendant filed two additional requests with Ms. Cruz, concerning his sentence in court and also concerning the actual amount of minimum mandatory penalties. Ms. Cruz responded on June 7, 2007, and defendant reviewed the request and added the minimum mandatory based on the sentencing structure and was blindsided with the total of 40 years, and it could have totaled 50 years. Defendant was of the belief that no matter how many life sentences, he would be eligible for release after the 25 years minimum mandatory. Defendant now submits this instant motion to vacate and set aside his guilty plea because had the trial court or defense counsel followed fair and proper procedure as required by the rules of court, defendant would not have entered his guilty pleas. Defendant prays this honorable court will find the due diligence prong met and would allow defendant to go forward with his motion on the merits of his claims. Attached to this handwritten letter was Jesse James Brannon's high school diploma certificate and his GED transcript scores. He did indeed score a 700 out of 800 on his language arts and reading skills, which put him in the 98th percentile. In the other four categories, he tested much lower. His language arts writing skills put him in the 27th percentile, math, 42 percentile, science, 76, and social studies, 58. He got a total score of 2,710, well above the required 2,250. In his language arts writing category, he scored a 440, just 20 points over the minimum required in each test area. But he passed nonetheless. 
It's clear in the writing of his letter, based on grammar and punctuation, that he struggles. But I have to give it to him. He applied himself and learned to read and write functionally in prison, regardless of where he began. I will note that there was never any formal assertion as to where his skills were when he went in, though. There was some informal discussion about him being functionally illiterate and the need for the court to make sure he understood his sentence. But there doesn't appear to have been any formal findings related to how much he could read or write at the time of his incarceration. Reading that letter really made me wish that Jesse James Brannon would have put even half the time and effort into not being a violent offender and robber while out in society as he did to getting his GED while in prison. I applaud his efforts, but unfortunately the tenacity that he has shown while incarcerated will never make up for the multiple violent offenses that he committed. Mr. Biddick's bashed-in head can't be put back together with Jesse's 98% reading skills ranking on his GED. Still, having read that, I admit I was troubled. Did he really understand the pleas he was making and what the consequences he might be facing were when he made them in court? The 85-page transcript I read would give me the answers to my concerns, and it was included in a brief written as a denial to Jesse's motion for post-conviction relief. The transcript was dated June 18, 1992. The purpose of that proceeding was for Jesse James Brannon to enter a plea pursuant to a plea agreement that encompassed three different cases, the Biddick's homicide, count three of the robbery charge, and his escape charge. Jesse was asked if he understood dozens of times in the transcript, and the court even started out saying, quote, At any time, if there's anything that you don't understand, you let us know and I'll give you an opportunity to confer with your attorney, or you can address questions to the court, touching on your understanding of the process by which you are entering your plea agreement in this case. Do you understand me? Defendant? Yes, sir. The agreement that day covered a plea to first-degree felony murder and a count of robbery with a deadly weapon. His third was battery on a law enforcement officer and escape. The court reviewed the felony murder count charge and the charge for the robbery with deadly weapon. Jesse was told that when he pled to the escape charge, the state had requested and the court had agreed to the life sentence with a minimum mandatory of 25 years. That was just the first-degree felony murder. The court had no discretion in that sentence. Jesse was told that he would not be imposed the sanction of death by electrocution. He was informed that the sentencing for the robbery and the escape charges would not be imposed at that time and would occur later after he testified in the case of his co-defendant, to which he agreed. He was also informed at this time that the state had reserved the right to recommend any sentence, including consecutive sentencing and including the habitual violent felony offender maximum for count three, the robbery with a deadly weapon. He was advised by the court that the maximum consecutive habitual sentence that he could be imposed by the court at the state's request, which they said they would request, would be a life habitual offender. They twice repeated it, and they twice repeated that it would be consecutive. It's important here to note that consecutive sentences mean that the defendant serves them back-to-back. A defendant serves concurrent sentences at the same time. So in essence, consecutive sentences are bad for the defendant. They are piled on top of one another for longer and longer time to serve, while concurrent sentences are all being served at the same time. In the beginning, I wasn't sure if Jesse understood that. He just kept saying yes every time they asked a question. But then there was this interaction. 
Mr. Buchanan, his lawyer, said, Do you understand that if the court were to sentence you consecutively on those remaining counts, that it would, in effect, prevent your release from prison? Defendant. Yes. Mr. Buchanan. Ever. Defendant. Right. Then his lawyer asked him this before the court. In return for the state's recommendation of a life sentence, have you freely and voluntarily, without threats or coercion of any kind, admitted your guilt in the felony murder of Harold Biddicks? Jesse said, yes. His lawyer said, will you agree, and do you hereby agree, that you will testify truthfully and candidly and completely about all matters under investigation that relate to the death of Harold Biddicks when requested to do so by the state attorney assigned to this case? Jesse said yes. Jesse was agreeing that for testifying against his co-defendant, David Tomlinson, he would get a life sentence rather than death, and that life sentence included a minimum mandatory sentence of 25 years. So for that alone, he's getting 25 years. But that didn't include the other two cases that he'd later be charged for after he testified against his co-defendant. Jesse was told that if he failed to cooperate and testify, the state retained their right to seek the death penalty, and Jesse said he understood. Pursuant to their agreement, the state agreed to dismiss count two of the burglary, still leaving count three and his escape charge and battery against a law enforcement officer. When they asked if he had any questions regarding the previous, he said no. And then again, his lawyer went over it in court in front of the judge and the state. His lawyer said, as indicated, you will be entering a plea to count one in the indictment. First degree felony murder. That's a capital felony in this state, and there are only two punishments, death or mandatory life imprisonment, and you are convicted of a mandatory 25. Jesse said, yeah. Then his lawyer said, do you understand that you'll also, pursuant to this plea agreement, be entering a plea to robbery with a deadly weapon? And without habitual offender designation, that's a first-degree felony, punishable by natural life in prison. Uh-uh. Do you understand that as a habitual offender, it's a life sentence, also the maximum penalty? Uh-uh. You understand, ultimately, the state of Florida could request, and the court could sentence you consecutively on all of that, if the court chooses to do that, defendant, yeah. Now, I want to stop for a minute. If the transcript here is right, he just said, uh-uh, indicating no, and his lawyer just soldiered on like he said yes or uh-huh. And it's clearly at an important juncture because it's at one of the points where his lawyer is explaining to him that he's got two other offenses he's not yet been charged on, and both of those, even without the habitual offender designation, can get him a first-degree felony punishable by life in prison. His lawyer says, also here today, you'll be entering a plea to escape. Without it being enhanced as a habitual offender, the maximum penalty for escape is 15 years imprisonment. Do you understand that? Jesse said, yeah. Then his lawyer said, do you understand that as a habitual offender, the maximum penalty becomes 30 years imprisonment? Jesse says, "Uh uh-huh. I just can't be sure if the two previous huh-uh, meaning no, were an error due to transcription. But he's clearly saying yeah for "Uh uh-huh for other affirmative answers. Then his lawyer goes on to ask if he understands that he has a right to a trial by jury, if he prefers, which he says he understands and he declines. This has also gone over multiple times with both the lawyer and the judge. He's told that if he takes that plea, he not only waives his right to a trial, 
but he waives any right to appeal the facts of the case. Waiving a trial essentially sets the facts of the case laid out by the state in stone, and they can't come back on appeal. That's what they're trying to tell him. Jesse's only appellate options at that point would be technical appeals regarding the plea agreement that they're going over right now, and anything that he may take issue with during that hearing. Everything else is off limits. Jesse is then asked if he has previously been convicted of a felony, and he says yes, twice. He's asked how far he went in school, and he said ninth grade. Then he is reminded that he has disclosed to his lawyer that he was under the influence of alcohol during the time of the crime, and he says, yeah, he remembers. Then his lawyer asks him if he remembered them discussing the option of arguing a voluntary intoxication defense, and Jesse says, yes, he did, and they decided not to do that. Then his lawyer asks, Has anyone subjected you to any form of force or duress or threats or intimidation to make you enter this plea rather than have a jury trial in this case? And then, in one of the longest statements that he says in the entire process, Jesse says, No. They just said if I don't take this, I was going to die in the electric chair. I was going to die in the electric chair if I didn't take this, so I took this. Now that stands out as problematic to me. Because it's clear that the reason he took the plea was fear of electrocution, which is a valid reason. I mean, many defendants take life to get out of a death sentence. But I just, I still had my concerns about how much of this he was understanding at this point. It's hard to get the general idea from a transcript how all this lawyer speak was going over in the room. But they continue to question him. Jesse is asked if he believed that he had a competent attorney, and he said yes. He was satisfied with the advice and the help that his lawyer had rendered. He's asked if he admits that he's guilty of the charge or charges he's pleading to, and he says, quote, yeah, I'm guilty of it. He's again asked if he gave his plea freely, and he says, yeah. He's then asked if he intends to enter a plea for the escape and battery charge, and he answers, yeah. Next, the judge jumps in, and he basically asks all of the same questions to make sure that Jesse understands. And Jesse repeatedly says, yes, sir. The judge also informs him that if the judge in Baker County is reluctant to agree to the plea agreement because he's not bound by it, the case would be transferred back to him in Union County, and he would, as the trial judge, accept the plea in the Baker County case pursuant to the agreement. The judge asks him if he needs more time to go over his plea agreement forms and ask any questions or if he, quote, fully appreciates and understands what has taken place today. He wants to know if Jesse is prepared to go ahead. Jesse says that he needs no more time. Then the judge asks him, Have you been able to understand what we've been saying here? Jesse says, Yes. The judge says, No problem in understanding what Mr. Buchanan asked you or the statements that I made to you or the questions that I've asked. And Jesse shook his head. And when he asks if he understood, he replied, Yes. Everything? The judge further asks. And Jesse says, Yeah. I mean, there are literally pages and pages of them asking if he's sure and if it's his decision and if he understands and if he's had sufficient time to reflect and discuss it with his loved ones. But Jesse says he's ready, so they proceed and the state attorney, John Maines IV, makes it crystal clear that the state reserved its right to apply the habitual offender statute and believed that the actual maximum term should be imposed on the defendant. Life sentence on count three plus 30 years for the escape. Now they all want to make sure he understands that. So his lawyer says, Jesse, one of the things here that's in our five-page petition to enter a plea here 
Paragraph 16, which I apparently neglected to review with you, is regarding your right to appeal the facts of what happened in this case and in these cases. Do you understand that by entering this plea, you give up your right to appeal the facts of what happened? Jesse says yes. His lawyer goes on. Do you understand that if you want to appeal the facts of what happened, including the question of whether you're guilty or innocent, that you would need to proceed to a jury trial where a court reporter would take down the facts so that an appellate court could review those facts? And Jesse says yes. So his lawyer asks, do you understand that entering a plea here today, you waive your right to an appeal of the facts of what happened? And Jesse says yes. Then his lawyer goes on. You are subject to sentencing further after count one, which we anticipate today being a life sentence with a mandatory 25. There are two other counts that will be held in abeyance until after you provide or comply with the plea agreement. Those counts are robbery with a deadly weapon, which as a habitual offender carries a life penalty, and escape, which as a habitual offender carries a maximum penalty of 30 years incarceration. Do you understand that the court would have the power, if it chose to, at the time of your sentencing, to sentence you to a consecutive life for robbery, followed by a consecutive 30 years as a habitual offender? Do you understand that? And then Jesse says, yeah, but I ain't going to plea to escape. And then the lawyer looks at him and says, you are pleading to the escape. And Jesse says, no, I ain't. And the lawyer says, we need to talk then. And Jesse says, yeah, because I ain't. A 10-minute recess was taken, and then the proceeding resumed. Jesse's lawyer, Mr. Buchanan, said, Yes, Your Honor, if I might explain for the court what just happened, it's a misunderstanding. What Mr. Brannon understood the state attorney to say in his comments regarding the escape case was that there would be a mandatory consecutive sentence in that case, which is absolutely incorrect. There is a possibility if the court chooses to sentence you consecutively on the escape, and that could happen after you've complied with the plea agreement. But on the escape charge, there is also, if the court chooses to sentence you, to concurrent time at the appropriate time. And there is no mandatory consecutive sentence for that escape, or for the escape Baker County has charged. Do you understand that? Jesse just says, yeah. Jesse must have thought his chances at not getting the maximum for the habitual offender on that charge were better than they actually were. The court tried to clarify it for him even then. The judge said, What the state is saying is that at the time you come up for sentencing on the robbery and escape charge, that they could argue, as Mr. Buchanan has said, that as to the robbery, you could be sentenced to another life term. Jesse nodded as the court continued. They could also argue that as a habitual, violent felony offender, as to the escape, you should be sentenced to an additional 30 years. Consecutive, added to that life sentence. Jesse again nodded, and the court continued. That's the ultimate that the court could impose. That doesn't necessarily have to be the sentence of the court. The state will be charged with the responsibility of making a recommendation at the appropriate time, pursuant to the plea agreement. They don't have to proceed with the violent felony offender disposition in this case, or they can. Do you understand what I'm saying? Jesse said, yes, sir. Then the court said, after they make that decision, it is still within the court's discretion, my discretion, as to whether or not you're sentenced to the very maximum that the law would require, or something less than that, within what the law requires. So what the attorney is saying is that whether or not the escape charge would be a consecutive or run with the life sentence, 
is for the court to make that determination after you've been heard and the state has been heard. To that, Jesse said, okay. I mean, if that's me, I'm not liking the odds or my options. I'm thinking I might have rolled the dice and gone with a jury trial. After a few more pages of what amounted to more of this, hey, you getting what we're laying down here, dude? From the court, it was up to Mr. Maines, the state attorney for Union County, to lay out the facts of the case, upon which they believed they could rely at trial to get a conviction. He said that Mr. Biddick's body was found in his bar in Lake Butler by a corrections officer who had come in for a beer. The body, observed behind the counter, was in very bad condition and had been subjected to severe trauma. They established that Jesse and his co-defendant had left another person's home a few minutes prior to the murder that occurred around 3.30 in the afternoon, where they had been gathering enough change to buy a six-pack of beer because they'd run out of money. Then they went to Harold's bar in Jesse's vehicle and parked at the entrance of the establishment. A witness drove by at that time and recognized it as Jesse's vehicle. This witness even saw David Tomlinson and Jesse Brannon enter the bar. It appeared that an altercation had taken place in the bar. There was a six-pack and a bunch of change laying on the counter. Enough change to purchase that beer. It was established through witnesses that the co-defendant's vehicle was located at a business a block away and then disappeared during the course of the investigation. A manhunt ensued, taking place in multiple counties. Approximately two or three hours after the murder, Jesse, his co-defendant, and a third individual were located by a Baker County deputy at a retail establishment near Sanderson, Florida. The deputy knew Jesse due to his prior criminal history. He had had contact with him before. He approached Jesse, told him he was under arrest, and during the course of that arrest, Jesse pushed him. Then he, the co-defendant, and that third person jumped into the truck and drove off. The deputy pursued the vehicle, but he lost it. It was later found abandoned in the woods. The occupants had fled. His co-defendant was found that day. Jesse was apprehended a couple days later. His co-defendant led police to a ball-peen hammer that had been used in the murder, and the medical examiner said the injuries were consistent with the ball-peen hammer. The court documents note that the location of the hammer was originally given as being in one creek but actually found in another, further down the road. And of interest to me is the fact that Swift Creek is just down the road. Both of these bridges over the creeks look alike and both would essentially be an easy place to toss a weapon in an effort to hide it. In addition to that evidence, a bloody palm print belonging to Jesse Brandon was removed from the bar area not far from where the deceased man was found in the immediate proximity to where the murder occurred. It was also established by witnesses that Jesse was flashing a large sum of money after the murder. Mr. Biddicks was known to carry a large sum on his person, and when found, his pockets and wallet were empty of cash. Jesse's co-defendant, Mr. Tomlinson, told police that Jesse was in possession of a large sum of money after the murder. He told police that he'd gone to the bathroom when they were at the bar, and when he came out, Harold Biddicks was dead. The state attorney then went into the facts of the escape, all of which were used to impress upon the court and the defendant that had Jesse James Brannon chosen to go to jury trial, the state believed that not only would they get a conviction, that there was a reasonable chance of him getting the death penalty, because they'd certainly be asking for it. 
So that's why Jesse took the plea. He was given the opportunity to say many times that he didn't understand what was happening. Although I'm even willing to give him the benefit of the doubt and believe that he was overwhelmed, out of his element, and maybe he didn't understand the complicated charging structure for each of those offenses. But I'm not sure it really makes a difference in the grand scheme of things, given that he took the plea to avoid the death sentence, and that's what he got. He wasn't sentenced to death. He also admitted right there in court that he was guilty of murdering Harold Biddicks. So unless he planned to change his mind, have a trial, and then claim innocence, which he has never done to this day, I don't know how the outcome would have been any different. I know that people will say that guilt or innocence aside, people should have a fair trial, and I agree. But once you waive that because you are making a tactical decision not to risk getting the death penalty, you unfortunately waive that fair trial. Clearly in this situation, it would have been a gamble. I guess that all I'm saying is that as a practical matter, I don't know that had Jesse bought into that hand, the outcome would have been any different. I believe he's guilty. He admitted his guilt. And life in prison for bashing someone's head in until they die seems generally how the system in this country works. Particularly with people with prior violent offenses. In the end, there are enough similarities to Darlene's case that if I were the detective, even just with the proximity and the type of violence, I'd certainly want to rule Jesse James Brannon and his co-conspirator out on Darlene's case. Next week, we'll dive deeper into Rob and Charlie, their criminal histories, and look into whether they might be the strongest suspects in Darlene Messer's murder. Stay tuned. <laughs>